Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we are joined by David Hansen, Teachers College, Columbia University. David Hansen, welcome to Pipeline. Thank you, Winston. Now, David, I wonder uh, if you would, given the format of our program, uh, perhaps orient our listeners. Um, how did you get started doing philosophical work on questions of education? Uh, did, did one come for you uh, before the other? Uh, what was your trajectory like? Yeah, I think what I could say, Winston, is that um, education definitely came first. And then the realization that my education had been saturated with philosophical questions came next. And I can't really sort of date when that happened, but uh, um, reflections on the school experiences I had from K through 12. um, I'd say the reflective part of it really began in college. When I took philosophy classes, uh, encountered people like Socrates, and uh, then began to think about education. Okay. And so uh, tell us a little bit about then that uh, uh, um, pathway for you. Uh, uh, So you mentioned taking uh, philosophy courses in college. Is this uh, as an undergraduate, as a graduate student? Uh, When was this in your... Yeah, uh, I had some uh, really wonderful professors as an undergraduate Mm -hmm. in college and uh, who taught philosophy not only in its sort of classic analytic conceptual mode, but with great passion. Mm-hmm. And for these faculty who I had, um, philosophy was a, as much a lived practice. Um, it, its office in life was to spotlight the ethical. Mm-hmm. That's the main lesson I think I learned from some college professors I had. And um, it just hasn't stopped from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I went into teaching for a while first um, before going back to, before going to graduate school and getting, uh, getting the doctorate. But uh, I think that, yeah, to put it briefly, um, I was really lucky to have some good teachers Mm. in college. Mm. Um, And so to my ears, it sounds as though that focus on the teachers that you had, as well as the the sort of um, uh, retrospective uh, attention that you were able to give to your own experiences, suggests a close engagement with the classroom. Uh, I wonder, has that close engagement with the classroom sort of um, uh, been an abiding feature of your of, of the work that you've done, your scholarship? Uh, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your scholarship over the course of your career here? You know, it wasn't until I was a doctoral student that I first read John Dewey, and I recognized myself in one of his central claims, which is that philosophy is about the problems of human beings, first and last, rather than, rather than about the problems of philosophers. And um, I think um, just being a teacher, um, I, actually, I started teaching when I was in high school. I was a, a tutor and a coach, and then just kept going on into that. Um, for me, um, philosophy and education have simply, they're not synonyms, but they've been um, uh, so <laughs> twinned and okay. intertwined, and sure, uh, um, yes. the one constantly feeding into the other. Um, I'm not sure. 
I wonder if there was ever a separation for the two. Um, you know, even I mentioned that I first became sort of critically aware of my education when I was in college, but um, some of the th musings and thoughts I think I had as a child or as a young boy, um, if I look back on them, I can maybe flatter myself that there was a philosophical tint to them. But sure. uh, So in a nutshell, uh, Winston, I mean, I think educational practice and philosophical reflection have always been so glued, and so it's no... I don't, I don't know if it was destiny, but my research, uh, my scholarly focus has been very centrally on teaching and on educational work and the whole nature of the face-to-face -face, um, encounter of the teacher and the student um, juxtaposed with the world coming in through the curriculum. Uh, that's just been um, a very natural focus when I think on it. and. Uh, What's lovely about it for me, too, is it's been uh, it's such a continuous education. Uh, there's a, there is a real sense, this is going to sound hopefully not too romantic, but there really is a sense when I meet a new teacher and I, get a ch I have an opportunity to get to know him or her, um, there's a whole kind of gestalt shift in my understanding. It's just now moved a bit. I can't quite think of the moral dimension of teaching in quite the same way I did before or... The, the nature of pedagogy in quite the same way I did before. Um, so I think that's how I'd characterize um, my scholarship. I really got into it organically. Um, yeah. And it sounds as though uh, you know your scholarship uh, is intimately connected to your to your person, of course. Um, and I, I heard you mention a couple different ideas. You talk about the moral dimension uh, uh, of your experience with, with teachers. You talked about uh, this sort of ethical focus. You also mentioned the relationship between the teacher and the student uh, with the world coming in as well. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps you could say something to our listeners about some of the topics that you've worked on uh, through mm -hmm. your scholarship. Yeah, w one of them is centrally uh, the, the moral dimensions of teaching. Yeah. What, what is it that makes working with children and youth as a teacher, a fundamentally moral enterprise, a moral endeavor, as well as an intellectual, reflective endeavor sure. uh, at the same time. That's something that um, I started formally studying as a doctoral student, and then research there took me right into my assistant professor years and the like, and uh, just trying to tease out what that means. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to say that teaching is a moral undertaking? I think it's a beautiful description still. I still mm -hmm. believe that. Um, but we do have to, I've, I've kept thinking about this concept of the moral and the related concept of ethics throughout my career. And we have to keep questioning and examining and rethinking mm -hmm. the moral and the ethical. Um, another related project was, um, that really came out of that one was um, the idea of teaching as a calling, mm -hmm. teaching as a vocation, the sure. old Latin word vocare to be called. Sure. Uh, and I ended up working with some teachers I'd worked with before on a project looking at the moral dimensions of, of educating. And so that was a topic I ran with for a number of years. Mm. Um, contrasting teaching as a calling with teaching as a job sure. or an occupation or a profession. Those mm. are the more familiar um, economic terms we have. Mm. But I discovered that the language of calling really seems to speak to a lot of teachers mm. in terms of their motivations for being in the classroom and why they've sustained mm. their lives in the classroom despite tremendous challenges and difficulties. Maybe one other project I could mention, Winston, would be um, getting into um, uh, 
the topic of cosmopolitanism yes. and education, uh, which you you had a chance at one point to offer some nice criticism about, <laughs> and uh, and that that was a long. I mean, I've, I spent a, a good decade researching that topic, thinking about it. And I think it had continuity with the other work on the relation between teachers and students because cosmopolitanism for me became a really interesting way to think about what does it mean to be a teacher and a student in the world today mm. with our sort of globalizing environment, um, the tremendous forms of diversity that we're always encountering, and the, the sort of new pressure on the question, the, the age-old human question of how do we come to engage difference? How do we come to live and dwell with difference and to see it not as a problem but as a gift? Mm. Um, and so those those would be three of the projects that have kept me going for many, many moons. And it sounds to my ears as though they are, in fact, uh, uh, closely uh, related, right? I mean, on the one hand, you talk about this uh, uh, this moral dimension of uh, of the practice of teaching, uh, but you also talk about sort of disrupting the sort of economic language of teaching, and rather than thinking of it as a job or a profession, but thinking of it as a calling, mm -hmm. which in some ways you say uh, really resonates with educators. And then also talking about this sort of cosmopolitan orientation suggests as well uh, a sort Sort of uh, uh, moral or ethical uh, mm -hmm. engagement with the outside world that sort of uh, moves beyond the merely economic and it sort of moves mm -hmm. beyond the uh, uh, the merely political and suggests something a little bit uh, more rich. Yeah. Um, is, 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 that, is that correct? That, that's a very lovely yeah. commentary. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a nice way to, to interpret it. Um, the, uh, the, I think that the, the guiding thread throughout all this work and right up to today talking with you and your listeners right now has been um, trying to really think through the the quality of our lives mm. the lived quality of our lives with a nice with a strong ethical sort of moral slant to quality mm. um, you use the word richness right. I'm really interested in the richness of our lives not materially speaking sure. but culturally speaking and Meaning-wise speaking, sure. um, it's such a cliche that um, you know money doesn't buy happiness. Uh, the world seems to have a very hard time learning that, sure. and yeah. so it keeps buying unhappiness mm -hmm. again and again and again. And our economic structures are just almost created to breed unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think the work I've been doing, like so many other colleagues in our field, is trying to not create but um, maybe reimagine something that's really deep in the human heart, and that's that we want a meaningful life, mm. not just a material life. Mm. Um, and I wonder, so uh, if it's the case that these questions have been the questions that uh, in some ways were able to sort of trace back to your very early life experiences and so forth, um, uh, what do you envision moving forward? Uh, many of mm. our listeners are graduate students thinking mm. about their own sort of uh, research agendas in the future or at the moment. Uh, are there questions that we really uh, need to be thinking about uh, relative to the concerns that you've got? Uh, questions that perhaps um, haven't been uh, mm. or, or can't be answered uh, using the uh, uh, solutions that we've worked through or worked yeah. on in the past. What, what, yeah. What's in front of us? Yeah, that's a nice question. And I think... Uh, my strong advice to uh, graduate students today in education mm. would be to um, study human questions. Mm. 
not production-oriented questions, not um, system-oriented questions, not questions of efficiency. Mm. Um, those are those are important. They have their place, uh, obviously, in a large society like ours. But I think we need now, as much as ever, um, really good educational inquiry on human questions, mm. the human dimensions of becoming educated, the human dimensions of being an educator, the human dimensions of conceiving what we call a policy. Mm. You know, policy seems to be rooted in politics, which mm. is rooted in the word polis. Mm. What's, and polis is not a, it doesn't mean political system, it means community. Mm. Our educational policies today are not oriented toward community. Mm. They've, they've lost their soul, mm. they've lost their deep origins in the concept of polis mm. and of politics. So I think we need educational researchers and teachers and faculty to, to, remind, to, to get that human dimension back on the table. Mm. Um, get back on the table um, why it is we educate in the first place. Why it matters in terms of uh, human cultivation and formation and development. And in a practical way, Winston, I think that means educational researchers today should be turning their gaze back on their, their root um, Discipline, if you will, using that in a very loose sense, and that's that's the humanities. Interesting. Uh, educational research today is dominated by certain narrow forms of social science, mm. um, and again, there's purpose to that, and it does some things, but it doesn't do the most important things mm. by any stretch of the imagination. So, I, I would encourage the audience to remember um, the humanities. What what we learn about human lives through the arts, um, through literatures, through poetry, through um, all of these things that um, are thousands of years older than social science. Sure. And they're thousands of years older for a good reason. Mm. They're very much about what it means to be human and to become human and to engage other human beings in a rich, ethical, and above all, meaningful way. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the next generation of educational researchers. I hope they will really pick up the baton from uh, so many colleagues I can think of who are trying to um, sort of rehumanize education in our time and, and tomorrow's time. And in some ways, I wonder if that uh, process of attempting to rehumanize education means in some ways, yes, uh, to engage the social sciences that you've, uh, that you've mentioned, but to engage them towards uh, that, that purpose, right? Rather yeah. than social science for social science's sake, yeah. uh, what, I hear you to be, what I hear you to be suggesting is perhaps uh, that we might wish to engage social sciences, uh, but direct the social sciences yeah. uh, towards the pursuit of the human. That, that would be an ideal. Yeah, uh, and that goes back to Max Weber and any number of other sure. great founding social scientists who who always said that social science needs to be in the service of yeah. humanities, in the service of humanistic goals and values. And what's happened today, as you know, is that social science is sort of uh, self-generating. Yeah. It it accepts the policy structure as it is and tries and just works completely within that. And that's not a criticism of social science, that's just what it does. Yeah. It doesn't deal with values. Yeah. It doesn't deal with purposes. It, 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 is, it is methodologically silent on all of those things mm. because that's its gestalt. That's what it thinks science is, sure. is being silent on values and purposes, aims and all those things. At the end of the day, and I think there, I think there are definitely people in our field, social science trained in education, who do see their work as trying to serve 
these larger purposes. Um, but today's educational policymakers, I don't know if they have much of a grasp of that. <laughs> and that suggests to me very uh, good work for us moving forward, uh, re work of sort of reminding educational policymakers uh, uh, about uh, these issues of aims and values and so forth, mm -hmm. and then also providing the very same to our colleagues who work in the social sciences. Couldn't be said better. Yeah. David Hansen, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Winston. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. Very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer for our community.